You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Um, I'm grateful when the Holy Spirit just uh, weaves things together in a morning. The word that uh, Mandy gave this morning, it was ex- I honestly don't need to share the message today because that's exactly um, the word. It's seeing the Father rightly. Seeing the Father rightly. There's a quote I tell the Jesus School students by A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. It says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's so important that as a church, the Lord has brought us on this journey as a family of this collective cry, Lord, open up our eyes so that we might see you rightly. Lord, open up our eyes so that we might see you clearly. This this Ephesians 1 prayer. God, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you better. The wisdom of God as to what to do and where to go and the the revelation that comes through the spirit that leads us into truth. The the revealing, the opening up our eyes, the, the removal of distraction and obstacles so that we might see him clearly. And collectively, as a, as a, as a church, as a, as a family, we've been, that's, I mean, everything that we do, so that all may see Jesus. Because when we see him clearly, there's really only one response, it's complete surrender to the Lord. It is a falling down on your face before him. It is saying, Lord, you can have my life. You can have it all. There are, uh, Jesus, uh, most often, or not, if you were to ask any random person on the street about Jesus, most people would have favorable things to say about Jesus. Even if they don't believe in his deity, they believe uh, that he was a good guy. He, he had a good PR team, Jesus. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of good things to say, but the Father, in many ways, is, uh, is shrouded in mis- mystery, or he's viewed as, uh, as indifferent, or maybe angry, or spiteful, or withdrawn. So we have this confusion about who the Father is. That's why so often we fall into works-based salvation because we're not sure really who he is and where we stand with him. But listen, Jesus is the expression of the Father over and over and over in Scripture. It says it. Colossians 1, it says that Jesus is the, um, is the image of the invisible God. John 1 says that no one has seen God except for his son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with God, has made him known to us. Hebrews 1 says that he is the exact imprint of the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Over and over and over again, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So we look to Jesus. We look at his life. What was he like? What did he say? What did he do? What was his nature and his character? Well, he's a direct reflection, exact imprint of who the Father is. That our eyes might be open to see him clearly. Because that will impact every other area of your life. It will impact how you see yourself. It will impact how you see the people in your life that you care about. It will impact the the random people that walk in and out of your life that you don't care about. It will affect how you see them. It'll affect what you put your time and your energy into. 
It will affect what you value. Think about the values of your life. Our values as believers, as followers of Jesus, that our values need to be derived from our value, which comes from the Lord. That we would value the things that he values. That we, we would be about the things that he's about. But oftentimes, aren't we scattered, distracted by all these things, putting our time and energy on things that we think are both urgent and important, but are not urgent and important to the Lord? You could look at your life and I could say, man, what do you value? And you could say all these different things and then we could look at your life and analyze your life and say, and you could determine pretty easily if you value that thing or not. If you value that, that mindset or that, that way of life because it's laid to bear in our actions. How we see ourselves is a direct correlation between how we view the Lord. Do you see yourself as valuable? Not because of what you can accomplish and what you can do and because you are so impressive, but because of what you believe about him and what he says about you. Is he trustworthy? Is he really good? Is his word true? Is what he says about you actually true? How can you tell the value of something by what the price that's paid for it? And the price that was paid for your life, for mine, was the blood of Jesus, the most precious resource in all the universe, Jesus. It defies every economic law. There's always a demand for it. There's always ample supply, and it never, it never, it never fluctuates in value. There's this universal principle of value that we can understand that humanity is valuable in the eyes of the Lord. We are the crown jewel of creation, the Bible says. We are valuable because he sent, he loved us so much, he sent his son Jesus. And so sometimes we take that thought and we, I don't think, I think we take it for granted. We don't really understand what that means. We think, well, I'm just, I'm just along, I'm, I'm part of the package deal. He didn't necessarily want me he just wanted all of us, and we kind of all screwed it up, and so now he's got he's to make it right again. I mean, after all, his name's on the line. But that's not it either. There is a, a collective value that you and I have, but there's also a, a, a value that you have that is unique to you, that is specific to you. There, there are things about you. There is you being a specific son or a specific daughter that God loves you. I, I, I hope that that reality could take root in our hearts this morning. I have this guitar. I have many guitars, but a guitar that I have, it, it, if you were to look at it in the line of my guitars, is you would say this guitar is not really that impressive. Um, it's a, a Suzuki brand, which I thought it was a dirt bikes and stuff like that. But it's a it's a guitar I learned on. Uh, it's a 12, this old 12-string guitar. It doesn't, it sounds decent, but it, it's one that you'd probably find in a pawn shop or something. It doesn't have a lot of monetary value. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't give that guitar up for anything because it was the guitar that my, my, my mom played when I was young. It was the guitar that I listened to her sing and play guitar over us. and The, the guitar that I learned how to play on 
So you could say, I, I'll give you a million dollars for that guitar. Is there anybody? <laughs> All right, well. You could say, I'll give you a million dollars for that guitar. And, and, and the reason that I wouldn't give it up is because it means something to me. It might not mean something to you, but it means something to me. And you mean something to him. The, you might not mean much to the world or the people around you in your life. You might not mean much to, him, to them, but you mean something to him. He looks at you and he says, I want that one. I won't give up that one. I want you. Please let that reality sink into your life. God loves everyone. You've heard me say it. God loves everyone, but he also loves you specifically. And if we believe lies about him, if we come into alignment with lies about the Lord, it will bring us into a place of confusion about who he is and who we are in him. Your identity is formed in the heart of God. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 15. This message has been brewing in my heart for a long time, so I'll try to have us out of here by three. end of this message, we're going to ask ourselves, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit, the one who leads us into all truth, Jesus says, what lies am I believing about the Father? Or what lies am I believing about myself? This is, listen, this is not a self-esteem message. Self-esteem is useless. It's kind of like uh, trying to convince yourself that you're good enough. You have value because he says you have value because he has determined it. Because he is the creator of you and he says, you have value because I made you. The life in you is from me. And so in Luke 15, we have this, these three parables, which you've, I'm sure you've heard messages. I've spoken a message here on this as well. Last time I spoke, I shared about how the first time I ever spoke in front of people, it was... Uh, the last second, I was just called up and said, you're going to speak now, and it wasn't good. Well, my first message was actually on the, the story of, the, of the, the prodigal son, and I had ample time to, to prepare, and it was equally as not good. So <laughs> hopefully we do a little better today. One of the reasons, and there's several, but one of the reasons Jesus came was to set the record straight about who the Father is and his hearts and intentions towards mankind. And so he tells us these, these three parables. You know them, the parable of the lost sheep, right? The, the shepherd who leaves the 99 for the one. And each parable, it increases, the thing that is lost increases in value. The second is there's, there's a lost coin and it's equal to months and months of wages. It's one coin and it's lost and the woman searches and searches and searches all over, does whatever she needs to do to find this coin and she finds it. And there's great celebrating. Why? Because this coin that was lost, even though it was lost, it didn't lose its value. And when she found it, there was great rejoicing. 
And then he tells this story about a, a, a son. And it's, I know mine says the parable of the lost son. That's probably not accurate. Your might say the parable of the two sons. That's not necessarily accurate either. It should be the parable of the good father. <laughs> and his two sons who don't know him or see him rightly. And so Jesus is, is sharing these stories and there's really two groups of people he's after. There's the, the two parties that are listening are, are the religious Jews of the day and the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the thieves, and, and whatever else. And his, his, as Drew would say, the arrow, he's aimed his arrow at the heart of both of these groups who are on opposite sides of the spectrum but are actually in the same boat sinking together. And they don't see him rightly. They don't see the Father rightly. And so Jesus seeks to set the record straight. Within this parable, there are many lies that are, are essentially hinted at behind the If you look below the surface a little further, it's pretty easy to see. Fathers, uh, lies either believed about themselves or the Father. And we're going to talk about some of those this morning. So in verse 11, it says, Jesus continued. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got up, got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pig. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Let's stop right there. Jesus, this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would Open up our eyes that we might see you. Give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know you better. To echo that prayer of Paul, oh, just to know him, just to know him. This is the will of God for our lives, just to know you more. So Lord, would you open up our eyes, remove anything that hinders, any obstruction in Jesus' name, any lie that, that stands in the way. We walk on this path with you any cross that stands in that path, Lord, path, we take it up. We don't go around it. We take up that cross. We deny ourselves. We die to ourselves and we follow you all the days of our life. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, your hand would be upon this word as it's given this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 11, It says, Jesus continues, said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Jesus starts out by setting up this, like, really uh, a lot of tension. <laughs> because this son, or this father had two sons. There was the, the older son and the younger son. The older son would get two-thirds of the estate. The younger would get one-third. 
But it's this idea of, I don't want to wait. I want what's coming to me. I want what's mine. Give it to me now. I wish you were dead so I could have it now. And in that lies this lie that you and I can believe that God the Father is here for me. I don't mean like here for me as in comforter. I mean like he's here for me. It's like that immaturity in us that the world revolves around us, that every little thing that happens in this life is meant to serve me and and all my dreams and desires must come true and I don't want to wait for it. The son doesn't want to wait. He's got things to do. He's got dreams to accomplish. He's got plans. I can't sit around and wait for you to die. I want it now. And so... Every once in a while on this day, in this culture, a son would come to a father and say, Father, may I have my share of the inheritance now? And the father would give it under the understanding that he would use it to build the family business, not take it and do his own thing. But this son, he has that young man's selfish ambition. I want to be great. I want to be something. My father is here to serve me. And you and I can fall into that same Lie, God, you are here to serve me, to make my dreams come true, to give me the things that I desire. You notice he says, give me mine, give me mine. We, that sounds like a, I have a two-year-old, you met him earlier. <laughs> he's in that stage where he likes to, he's trying to figure out the boundaries. He'll take a toy from his brother's hands. And he'll just take it, right? Because he wants it. And it takes a lot to, to domesticate your children. <laughs> but he, you go to grab the, the toy and say, no, you got to give it back. And what does he say? No. He started saying that. Oh, man, it burns me. No. And then what's the next word? Mine. Now, you think we grow out of that, don't we? But we don't. There's things, man, just even what Scott was talking about in worship today, following the Spirit, it's the same thing. Once we, we have given our life to the Lord, and after a time, maybe we take it back, and he puts his hand on it. He says, I thought, I, I thought you gave me that. And we say, no, mine. And then we scream and have a fit, just like a two-year-old. And in order to justify that at times, we, we kind of... Um, create this image of who we want God to be in our own mind to suit our own desires to get what we want. So we create this image of who 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 we want him to be so it makes it a lot easier to follow him. I'm tired of waiting, so I'll create this God who's just, he's just wants to make all my dreams come true and it's all about me, 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 me. That is a, that is a human God. Reminds me of Exodus 32, doesn't it? When Moses is up on the mountain, hearing the word of the Lord, and the Israelites, they get tired of waiting. They're tired of waiting. So what do they do? They make a, we want to worship, we'll make this thing, we can worship this golden calf. And we'll just make this thing, and it's beautiful, and we like it, and it's made in our, our, our way. To suit our desires, not knowing that it, it never satisfies, it never satisfies, but we do the same thing. We create a, this image, this idea of who we want God to be. 
but we've departed from his true character, his true, the true reality of who he is. And the fruit is, this lifestyle, is that we do not value him or honor him in our hearts. And this will lead us into this second lie in verse 13. It says, not long after this, the son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Here's the lie, I don't need my father. This lie of we can be independent from God. This son is set out to make a kingdom for himself. And we, to be honest, we do, we do this. We, we take the giftings of the Lord, we take the blessings of the Lord, and we take them, and we can accumulate them. And we say, thank you so much for these gifts. Now I want to go over here and build my kingdom. And churches do this. We build a kingdom of whatever the church name is, not the kingdom of God. We take the blessings that the Lord has lavished out upon us only to take them and make them our own thing, our own kingdom. We have this tendency towards independence from God. Does this remind you of another story? Maybe in Genesis chapter three. We have the enemy, the serpent, coming to Adam and Eve, doesn't he? The first thing he does is he attacks, attacks the character of God of the Father. He's keeping something from you. Did he really say that? He wouldn't do that, would he? A good father wouldn't do that, would he? And the second thing he, he tempts him with is that you don't really need him, you know. You can be a God. You can be just like him. That's what he's keeping from you. He doesn't, he doesn't want you to know that. You can be just like him. You can be independent from him. However, every lie of the enemy What comes to be is never what we want it to be. They got independence from God, but they were never meant to have independence from God. They were never meant to carry the things that they carried apart from God. So oftentimes we want, I want to do my own thing. I want autonomy. I want to be my own person, God. I'll just come and ask you for advice every once in a while, but I don't really need you. I don't really need you. problem is, is that independence from God never gets us what we want. You were created for him. It's like a fish in, the, in a lake that's like, man, I really wish, I wonder what it would be like to be on land. It'd be so amazing to be on land. They're having so much fun up there. Like the Little Mermaid song, right? It's, oh man, it's so it looks so fun up there. And so one day this little fish swims up, jumps out of the lake and on land. And all of a sudden it's on land and it's flopping around. It's like, oh no, I wasn't made for this. And what comes then? Death comes. I wasn't made for this. Independence, uh, independence from God goes out of what your creative purpose is. You were created for complete dependence on the Lord. Complete dependence on him. Not, not separation from him. Colossians 1 tells us this. It says, in you, you were made. 
In, in, in God, you were made. Meaning in the heart of God, in the mind of God, you were conceived before it even came to be. Just in the same way as creation. It was conceived in the mind of heart of God. And then it was says, through him you were made. So you, first you were his idea. And second, then it was his, his word going forth that says, yep, we're doing this. We usually stop there. I'm here because I'm here God said so, and I'm here because of him. But now I'm free to live like I want to. But then it gives us the key. Why are we here? For him. For him. I, one of our Jesus School students asked this question. It's a great question. Why did God make us? Why did he even make us? It seemed like a lot of trouble. Why did he make us? I said, because he wanted to. It was his great pleasure. Why do we paint beautiful paintings? Why do we make uh, these elaborate meals? Because we enjoy them. Do you know he enjoys you? He doesn't put up with you. He enjoys you. He delights in you. He looks at your life and he says, oh man, I, I love them. I love them. Zephaniah 3 says that he rejoices over you. means he chances and he twirls about when he thinks about you. That's how pumped he is about you. He wanted to. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. And you were made for him. We cannot have separation from God. So this young man, he sets out to build his own kingdom and he falls flat on his face. And then he does exactly what Adam and Eve did as well, is tried to cover his sin. Tried to come back in his own way. He doubled down. He's like, I'm not going to, I can't go to my father, so I'm just going to hire myself out to a person of a, this foreign land, meaning uh, uh, something other, it's speaking to somewhere where he shouldn't have been in the first place. And now he's using the ways of that land to try to cover his tracks. And if at this point of the story, all the, the religious Jews of the, would have just gasped, the fact that he was doing anything with pigs was the lowest of lows. So first is this lie, God is, is here for me. Second is I don't need God. And the third is this. In verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So there's this light that goes off. Oh man, I can't do this anymore. I gotta go back. I gotta go back. But his thinking is so twisted. He's not thinking, my father's, he's not gonna, he's not gonna welcome me back as a son. But maybe, maybe he'd hire me back as a hired servant, a hired hand. And here's the lie that you and I often believe. God's love for me is conditional. When I'm a good boy, God loves me and he's really happy with me. When I'm not doing all the things that I, I think I should be doing or he sh or should be doing, and it might be legitimate that he somehow, man, his love, he doesn't love me now. His love for me is only offered when I'm doing all the right things. And so we get into the performance cycle, don't we? And around and around we go. 
When we're on top of that, that cycle, that circle, we're doing all the things that we feel like we should be doing. We're checking all the boxes. Everything is going great. But then life happens and it gets difficult. We start to slip a little bit, start coming down. We say, okay, it's okay, it's okay. I just gotta get back on track here. But we can only keep up in our own strength this this right for so long. And so we start coming down and all of a sudden we find ourselves at the bottom. We're with the pigs. So what do we do? I gotta make a plan. Okay, I just got off track and I just gotta get back on track. I gotta make a plan now. So we make the plan and then the plan starts working for a while. So it starts coming back up the circle, the cycle, and around and around and around we go, living our life perpetually, trying to perform our way into his good graces. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. God wants the best for you, that's for sure, like any good father. He doesn't want you to be stuck in sin and walking in disobedience. He wants his will for your life because he knows it's the best way. Not because he's trying to ruin your fun. This son has it all backwards. And my father... He's not really that good. He's not that very, very gracious, but maybe he'll hire me on as a hired hand. And that's not what happened. In verse 20, it says, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said, father, I've sinned against you and against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it, on his, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they all began to celebrate. The son came to realize he had no idea how good his father really was. I think God at times... It's just hoping, 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 hoping. Just trust me. Just see that I'm better than you think I am. I'm so much better than you think I am. My goodness cannot be exaggerated. The son has this speech prepared, right? And he's, he doesn't realize that the, the, the father has been looking for him, waiting for him to come home, hoping that he would come home. And you know the story. When the father sees him far off, and he runs to him. And the son begins to say the, the speech that he has prepared. Father, I, I, I'm not worthy to be your son. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Make me like one of your hired servants. And the father doesn't even acknowledge this speech. His heart is overwhelmed with compassion and love for his son. He's back. My boy is back. The thought had never even occurred to the father that he might be a hired servant. But his room probably stayed the same. It was ready. It still had the Michael Jordan posters on the wall. So here's the truth. We were made for him. 
And it's only through submission, dependence, and devotion to him that we will experience the beauty and goodness of God's love. Repentance was the key. The son had to come home to his father to understand who he really was. He had to submit himself to the father again to see the true character of the father. If you want to know God, submit your ways to him, all of your ways to him. Submit everything that you are to him. And then you have this adventure that's not just in this life, but the life to come of God continually revealing who he is throughout all eternity. There's no end to him. So that's the first son that's aimed at the sinners of the day. Now we have the second son who represents the, the religious Jews. And the religious people of those days, they, the Jews, they would have thought that first story was, was really wonky. Once the son was with the pigs, they said, okay, good, he got what he deserved. That's what you do to disgrace your family and the family name, that's what you get. In verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants, and he asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Let's stop there. See, this, this son, he, he's in the house. He never left. He's in the house, but already you can, you can feel this tension that this son has no idea who the father is either because he's in the house. He's doing all the things. I mean, he's in, working in the fields and he's working so hard, but he, he doesn't understand the true character of the father. He just understands religious works. So here's the other lie that we see come out. This anger come out in the brother. God is unjust. God is unjust. The father is unjust. How can God be just when he's showing such extravagant mercy to the son? Can both mercy and justice exist at the same time? Doesn't mercy come at the expense of justice? The son views the father as his pushover. In Matthew 23, Jesus challenges the Pharisees that they're neglecting the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Justice and mercy can exist at the same time. It speaks of the wisdom of God. And the cross is the greatest illustration of justice and mercy and faithfulness existing together. It was the mercy of God to send the Son. The mercy of God to send His Son, Jesus, to a people that weren't looking for Him or wanting Him, but not at the expense of justice. He can't contradict His own law. So the law still had to be fulfilled. There still needed to be consequences for the breaking of the law, for the separation. 
the death and the law of, of Jesus is what satisfied that justice. Jesus took the consequences of our actions, of our betrayals, so the justice of God was satisfied so that he could, be remain, he could remain faithful in bringing forth this new covenant where the law would be no longer written in tablets but written on our hearts. The spirit of God living in us. Both justice and mercy can exist together. Scott, would you come to the keys? We're going to respond in a moment. That's a common indictment against God that he's unjust, that he's not fair. But God is so good, he's so wise that he's able to show both justice and mercy without contradicting himself. The son goes on in verse, or the, the scripture goes on in, in verse 28, the second part of verse 28, it says, so the father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been saying to you, or I've been slaving for you and never disobeying your orders, yet you gave me you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But with this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The son has no idea who the father is either. Because all the while he'd been measuring himself by what he was doing for him. That son left, he did all these terrible things and I'm here slaving, I'm doing all the right things, I'm checking all the boxes, I'm working, I'm slaving for you. And here is the lie that we come to believe about God. God is measuring your value as a son or daughter based on your usefulness. It's out of love that we're obedient. It's out of love that we seek to do the will of God. It's not to earn it. That's what legalism is. Legalism seeks to, says, I will gain merit. I will gain merit by what I do for God. But holiness says, I want to please God because I love him and I want to do what is right. This son viewed himself as a servant as well. Defined by the things that he did. This is a common lie that we believe. I mean, I meet with people all the time. I'm only as good as I am useful. And the moment things start slipping, God has changed his mind. But here's the truth. God has not changed his mind about you. He has not changed his mind about you. Listen, in verse 31, he says, the, the, the son is doing everything he can to separate himself as well. He says, this is your son, your property. I ask things from you, but you never gave me anything. And what does the father do? He says, my son. He pleads with him. He goes out to him. He says, my son, you were always with me. Everything I have is yours. <laughs> but I had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He lost everything. 
or he was lost and he's found. He has enough love to go around. He can love the first son and the second son. But he endears the son. He says, son, you're my boy. It's not about what you're doing. I appreciate all you're doing, but it's not about that. Your motivation matters. He's not changed his mind about you. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.